You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Benson. All right, I'm going to pray for us. And then we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians once again today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we once again praise you and thank you for allowing us to be here together this morning. God, I thank you for the time that we have to look into your word now. I pray that you would teach us. Uh, Father, I pray that you would challenge us in the way that we think. God, that we would be able to wrestle through some of these issues together. God, that we would better understand what you desire for us as a church as we seek to evangelize, as we seek to disciple. God, help us to, um, to take our marching orders from your word. God, that we would rally around your, um, your mission, your plan for us as individuals as we come together as a church. Um, Father, I pray that you would just teach us through the Holy Spirit this morning that we would respond um, in a way that brings glory and honor to you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we've been in 1 Thessalonians. We are continuing to be there today in chapter 1. We're going to continue to be in chapter 1 for the next couple of weeks probably. Um, I don't want to move too quickly through this because I feel like there's some... Some important concepts that we need to we need to grasp hold of as a church as we move forward. We'll read again in, in 1 Thessalonians 1. We're only going to look at a, a half of a verse today. Um, we're going we're gonna to kind of let that spring our, our discussion, our teaching this morning. Um, we've looked at most of verses 1 through 5, but we're going to look at the end of verse 5 today. But let's read in chapter 1 together. It says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. It's that last part of verse 5 that I want us to look at today. It says, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. We've looked over the past couple of weeks at what it means to, to share salvation with others. What it means to take the gospel and to share it. We look specifically at how Paul does that with the church at Thessalonica. As he goes in Acts 17 and begins to, to teach them about Christ. And we said that he didn't come with a lot of wisdom and a lot of arguments and a lot of presentations that he came simply to share Christ with them. He says, this is the message that you need to, to get your, your minds wrapped around. It's Christ. It's that Jesus is the Messiah. And so he shared salvation with these people. We then looked at two weeks ago what it means to see salvation in others. How do we know when someone is genuinely saved? How do we know when someone is genuinely responding to us as we share the gospel with them? 
We said that Paul highlights a couple of things. Number one, he highlighted the authenticity of the message. He says, we know you guys are saved because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. He says, our gospel came to you. He says, I know that you're saved because it wasn't, it wasn't some random theology or doctrine that we were trying to teach you guys. It was the same gospel that we responded to. We know you're saved because we know the gospel that you heard was valid. It was genuine. It was biblically based. We taught you the right gospel. And I told you that you ought to be concerned as you're talking with people that you're friends with or co-workers. If you find out that, that they were saved in a church that historically doesn't teach the gospel. You know, if someone were to tell you, yeah, I'm a Christian, I follow Christ. Okay, um, you know, where did you get saved? Well, I got saved when I was growing up in church. I went to a Church of Latter-day Saints church. Hmm, that, 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 should, that should raise red flags because the Mormon church doesn't teach the same gospel as us. The, the Jehovah's Witness church doesn't teach the same gospel as us. For the most part, the Catholic church doesn't teach the same gospel as us. You need to be aware as you talk with people who claim to be Christians that you investigate a little bit. What was the gospel message that you responded to? Because Paul says, part of the reason I know you're saved is because I know the gospel that you responded to. He talks about the authenticity of their response. He says, we know you're saved because of your conversion. He says, you responded to our gospel. He says, it came to you not only in word, but also in power. And in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. He says it wasn't just that we shared the gospel with you. It's that the Holy Spirit was present as we shared the gospel. And I told you there's been times when I've been teaching and sharing the gospel. When I knew the Holy Spirit wasn't working in that person's heart. There was no power there. I was sharing the same words that I've shared before. But there was no power there. The Holy Spirit was not convicting that person. And it was falling on deaf ears. Paul says that didn't happen with you guys. You heard it. You were convicted. And then he talks about the authenticity of their fruit. He says we give thanks to God always for all of you. Remembering you before God and Father. Your work of faith. Your labor of love. Your steadfastness of hope. We said that there was fruit in their life, that they, they had gotten saved and there was evidence down the road that they were still saved because they were doing things with that salvation. They were staying, they were staying steadfast in their faith. They were loving each other the way that they were supposed to. They were working out that faith. And I think it's interesting that, that Paul attributes the thanks to God, not to these people. He recognizes that God is the source of fruit that even springs up in our life after salvation. He doesn't write these guys and say, thank you so much for being steadfast in your faith and for showing love to others and for working out your salvation. He says, hey, I just want to let you guys know I thank God constantly for what he's doing in your life. Because God is the source of even our sanctification. As we become more and more like Christ, it's God who gets the credit. It's not us individually that deserve any thanks. He says, we know you're saved because of your sanctification. But I think it's important that we recognize their sanctification didn't happen on its own. They were discipled to produce this fruit. Paul didn't just stop with the gospel message, run away, and then these guys continued to grow. There was some discipleship that happened here. Look what he says. You became, in verse 6, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. 
so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. She says you imitated us, which means there had to be some type of investment, some type of setting of an example for them to even imitate. And I told you Paul was probably only in this location three weeks to maybe six months. I tend to think it was a little bit longer because we said at the beginning, uh, two weeks ago, we said that there's a high recognition of Jesus' deity, even in the introduction. Remember we said that he says, remembering before our God, or um, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We said that, that he attributes deity to Jesus, that he's putting God and Jesus on the same level. And I told you that he can't just throw that in at the beginning of the letter unless these guys already accept that Jesus is God. So there was some clear instruction that took place, even from a theological standpoint, with these people. There was discipleship that had happened. There was clear instruction that had happened with these people. So their sanctification didn't happen on its own. And here's the problem and the frustration that I've been dealing with over the past few weeks. And I've been talking with different people, wrestling with some of this. um, And I want us to kind of work through some of this frustration together So that we can get on the same page to make those two statements that I read to you at the beginning uh, of our time today happen in this church. That discipleship really is an important aspect of what we do here. And if you've read the book Finally Alive, I don't know how many of you have read Finally Alive by John Piper. If you haven't, you should definitely put that on your to-do list. Um, it's, It's a really, really good book on what it means to be saved and how salvation happens. But at the beginning, he talks about how the Barna Research Group has done this research on how there are so many people in America that claim to be saved, but live just like the world. And the Barna Group's conclusion is is that really, being saved doesn't change you. There's, There's so many people that claim to be saved, but live just like the world. The conclusion that the Barna Group comes to is, it doesn't really change you to be saved. And the book takes a different approach. He says, no, the, the, the conclusion is there's a lot of people who think they're saved but aren't. Because the New Testament doesn't allow for you to be saved and not be changed. And, and my concern is that there's a lot of people in, in America who claim this. And unfortunately, they don't have somebody in their life taking responsibility for them. There's a lot of people who are running around saying, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. And they don't have somebody like Paul to either affirm or deny their salvation to them. They, they, they've, been, they've been, you know, a part of some type of evangelistic outreach or they've been a part of a church where the gospel was shared and they were led down to the front and they signed a card and prayed a prayer. And then they were dismissed and basically told, hope you get the rest of it on your own. And either they weren't saved and so there was no fruit that ever happened. Or they were saved, but they've just been so um, so neglected like a baby that they're so malnourished that you have a hard time recognizing that they're saved. Paul takes responsibility for these guys. He says, look, I know you're saved. We shared the gospel with you. We discipled you. And we're following up with you guys. Remember, Paul, we said he, 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 he gets forced to leave Thessalonica. But but he's made an effort to come back to find out how these people are doing. He doesn't just come in like an evangelist, throw out this gospel message, sign some cards, and then leave town and go do it somewhere else and never check up to see if it happened or not. He's very intentional about following up with these people. 
There's a lack of discipleship in our churches today. And I know in talking with some of you individually, you felt that. And I'm not sure that we fully understand the answer. But I think we've got to work towards finding the answer together. What does it mean to disciple? What does it mean to teach people everything that Christ has commanded? We want that to be a a huge part of what this church does. We want people to recognize that it's different here. That when you come here, you don't get neglected. You don't get told, hope you figure out the rest of it on your own. We appreciate you accepting the gospel. That we're intentional about building depth here. Not just numbers, but depth. Showing salvation to others. Showing salvation to others. We start part one today. He says, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. That's another reason why I think that this time frame was more than three weeks. Because there was a time frame where Paul proved his character to these people. He proved his character to these people. Alright, so we started off today, I asked you some questions and you guys got into groups. The questions were, what is your definition of discipleship? And then have you been discipled? And are you discipling others? So I'm curious to to see what, I want to get some feedback from you guys about how that discussion time went. And what are some of the things that you came up with. Somebody give me a highlight or a quick definition of what your group discussed about what discipleship is. What characterizes discipleship in your minds? One of ours is being taught how. Okay, being taught how. Not just being taught straight knowledge, but being taught how to use that knowledge. What else? Um, the first one was like old men teaching younger men how to be old men. Okay. Um, and then the other one was more like iron sharpening iron, and that a younger man can teach a younger man how to live, but he can only teach kind of what he's lived. Okay. So older men teaching young, younger men how to be men, and you could reverse that and say older women teaching younger women how to be women. But then also the concept of ironing, iron sharpening iron, where um, it doesn't necessitate an age for you to be able to disciple, that you can teach and instruct. But a lot of times you are limited based on um, on how you've lived or, or what you've experienced to a degree. I mean, you know, it, it may be difficult for me to teach someone how to how to parent their children because I haven't had kids yet. But that doesn't mean that I can't look at Scripture, see what Scripture says about parenting, and still teach someone how to parent their kids. So it's not that you have to experience everything to teach someone. I mean, because you can, you can see what Scripture says about something and teach someone, even if you've never experienced yourself or not. Um, so, yeah, the, the aspect of iron sharpening iron is, is a key point, too, I think, with discipleship. Other thoughts on what discipleship is? Okay. Right. 
between both parties in the discipleship process, that it's not just one person teaching someone else, that there's learning that takes place between both parties. And I think you see that even in Paul's perspective at times. Like he, he rejoices over what he gains from relationships that he has with these churches. It's not just, okay, I have something to offer you. You need to take this from me. He recognizes this, this two-way relationship that happens even in his discipleship with his people. Any other thoughts? There's a key element that is being missed in discipleship that we haven't discussed yet. I don't know if you guys did discuss it or not, but there's a huge key element, and I think it's the source of why we're all so frustrated with discipleship. Okay, yeah, definitely. Parenting is a key element of discipleship that God has given you what, what hopefully ends up being spiritual children. I mean, you've got physical children, and as you raise them in a house that's centered on the gospel, Lord willing, they respond to the gospel and get saved, and now you personally embrace the responsibility to disciple them, hopefully so someone else doesn't have to assume that responsibility, um, that, that the parent takes responsibility for discipling their children. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's the missing element is that discipleship is not just passing on knowledge and it's not just passing on the how to with knowledge. It's done with the purpose of seeing what we would call the third generation of that discipleship. I've been successful at making disciples if my disciples are in then making disciples as well. That's the missing element. I've asked a bunch of people over the last couple of weeks how many of them claim to have been discipled, and I haven't, I haven't found one person to tell me that, yes, they've been discipled, that, they, that they, they feel like they can affirm, yes, that they've been discipled. But what I have found is a lot of people who claim to be making disciples. So somebody's wrong. Somebody's wrong. Um, and I've even talked with people who I would, I would feel like I've discipled that answered the question, no, I haven't been discipled. So there's a problem there. Either, either we've got a misunderstanding of what discipleship is, or we've got a misunderstanding of what discipleship is. Because some of us think we are doing it, and there ain't anybody that thinks it's being done to them. And that's, that, should, that should be considered a problem, and we should recognize that problem and be concerned about that problem. That there's a lot of us who, at the end of the day, aren't concerned with Matthew 28, because we feel like, I guess, that we're doing it, that we're making disciples and yet at the end of the day, there's a bunch of people saying, I haven't been, having, I haven't been made a disciple yet. Nobody's, nobody's investing in me and making me into a disciple. So these are some questions that I've been wrestling with over the past few weeks. I, I was talking with John about this, and he emailed a bunch of his seminary professors. 
We had a long conversation, and he kind of he kind of related that information to his, his seminary professors and said, "Hey, what are we what are we supposed to do? Like, how do you make disciples?" And a lot of the responses that we got back were very discouraging to me, because a lot of them kind of emailed back and had a a very informal understanding of discipleship. I mean, they all they all embraced the idea. Yeah, we're supposed to be making disciples of the church, but what that means is is that we teach the word on Sundays. We have Sunday school classes, we do small groups, and, and we just try to be around each other and encourage one another. Was was kind of the summary of how this looked. It was very informal. There wasn't a lot of, yeah, here's our discipleship plan. When, when a new person comes into our church, they're a new believer, this is where we go with them. This is how we lead them to know the things that Christ has commanded them to do. Most of it was just kind of a, a real informal process of discipleship. It was a... We hope they pick it up along the way as we go type of thing. There was no clear set direction for what a new believer needed to know. And, I, and, I, and I've really developed an issue with the informal approach to disciple making. Um, I, want, I want Toby to come up here and I want Adam to come up here. I told him I was going to do this, but I didn't tell him what we're going to do. <coughs> you can take a seat. I'm going to give you a couple minutes to think about <laughs> Here, here's my concern, is that we're taking an informal approach to discipleship, but there's a lot of things that we don't take an informal approach to when we teach somebody. Okay? Let's imagine this morning for Adam that Jesus comes into church this morning with us, and he says, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm switching things up. Okay? Uh, no longer is the Great Commission to, to make disciples. The new commission, and Adam, I'm entrusting you with the responsibility and everybody else in here. The new responsibility is to make good football players. That's now the great commission, is to make good football players. Okay? So I want you to think for a minute what you would do to ensure that you are making good football players. What, what, would, what would your life start to look like? What would you start to do? How would you spend your time to make sure that you were making good football players? Okay? For Toby, Jesus comes in and says, for those of you that don't like sports and, and you're not a football player, the Great Commission is now different from you. Your responsibility is to make good drum players. Good drum players. That's the Great Commission for you, Toby, to make good drum players. So I want you to think through how you would handle that Great Commission and what you would start to do to ensure that you were making good drum players. Okay? Adam, that's all the time you get, so you go ahead and, and share with us. Uh, we watched a lot of film together. All right, we'd watch film together. Um, we would practice a lot. Okay. Um, and, how, and what would that look like, you think? Well, we have, like, different um, drills for different positions. Okay. And um, then we would scrimmage each other probably okay. once a week. And... Um, we have really cool uniforms. Okay. <laughs> and um, we would play uh, other teams in the area. Okay. And uh, just really try to make ourselves better. Okay. And uh, we drink a lot of Gatorade. Okay. It's probably safe to say that your approach wouldn't be, if you guys want to come over on Saturday and watch college football with me, you're more than welcome to. No. I mean, the things you just described are a lot more than just coming over and watching football with me if you want to. I mean, you're talking about having practice, film sessions, drills, scrimmages. 
All right, drum players. How are we making drum players? Adam definitely seems pretty confident in his ability to play football. Um, as for me, I think first step for me is I certainly have to like, work my tail off to even be able to play the drums greatly to teach. So I think the first would just be a good knowledge of everything as to be able to teach it. To but you're already teaching drum players. Yeah, but I mean, come on. So I mean, you're, I mean, once they build up, like. I mean, I actually don't know everything. Right. So. But I don't know everything about football. So let's skip the part about you learning how to play drums, because I already consider you okay. knowing how to play drums. drums. All right, so how are you teaching others to play drums? Well, we got to come in, practice, and it's a lot of people in different days. Um, come in, practice. I've got to teach them through um, different rudiments, what different things do. Um, Different aspects of you say rudiments? Rudiments. There are certain rudiments, fundamental ideas of things, how to play drums. Um, teach them that. Uh, what I've been doing lately, and what I would be doing more if I had more students, is have, have sheets to, to give them to take home to be able to practice um, on their own so they already come back. Um, I could be like, hey, have you been doing this? Did you say you gave them homework, basically? Yeah. Okay. Have you been doing this? Let me be able to see you do it. Um, and then if they do it good, then I'm like, all right, let's move on to the next thing and master that. If they don't, got to go back through. That way they definitely get it um, solid. It's good. All right, you guys can sit down. Appreciate it. What they just described is not an informal approach to making good football players and making good drum players. Neither one of them described a situation where they would just say, um, I hope they would just figure out how to play a drum and how to play football. I mean, they're talking about some hands-on approach where they're bringing people in and teaching them. And it took them about one minute to even come up with a direction that they would go for it. I mean, hardly any, hardly any thought process right here. And we've got a whole plan for how, to, for how to make football players and how to make drum players. My issue is, is that, that we are teaching people how to do a whole lot of things with a formal approach, and yet for some reason we're okay with disciple-making being real informal, and we're left not sure if we're making disciples or not. And there's a lot of people that are left not sure if they are a disciple or not. Another illustration, we train people to be good doctors and to be good nurses, and they go to school for that purpose. Ask Cortland and Jessica, how many hours are you going to spend in class and in clinicals before you graduate? Their, their rough estimate was about 1,168 hours over the next two years will be spent in class and clinical. Aren't you thankful that we're not just hoping that, that Cortland and Jessica get it? That, that there's some serious formal approach that's taking place here? It's not just... I hope you guys figure out how to take care of the human body so that when we bring people to you that have a problem, you know what to do. No, there's some intentional stuff that happens to make sure that they get it. If you spent two hours at church and two hours at a small group over the next two years, you know how many hours you would spend in a discipleship setting that the church offers? 416. 416 hours if you made every service and every small group for 52 weeks out of the year. 
It's almost triple that for the formal approach that we're taking for making nurses. It's a concern for me. It's a concern because I don't want you guys, as, as the church that's been entrusted to me, I don't want at the end of the day to just hope that you guys get it. Because what we're talking about is way more serious than taking care of the human body. I mean, it really is at the end of the day. It's way more serious than that. I don't want to hope, I don't want to hope that Jesse and Cortland figure out what it means to be in a, in a God-honoring relationship together that is moving its way towards marriage. I don't want them to just get it and hope they figure out what it means to get married and to love each other the way that Christ loved the church and to submit to one another the way that Christ has called us to. I don't want to, at the end of the day, hope they just figure that out on their own. I don't. I don't want any of you guys to have to figure it out on your own what it means to follow Christ. I think we have to get serious about what does it mean to make disciples and, and, and get as serious about it as we are about other things in our life that we teach, that we train. That we don't just at the end of the day hope people get it. In your notes, the definition for discipleship. This is a definition that a guy at, at Liberty came up with, our, um, our campus pastor. Discipleship, it's the process by which a Christian... process by which a Christian with a, with a life worth emulating, emulating is E-M-U-L-A-T-I-N-G, if you don't know how to spell emulating, emulating means like modeling or copying, just sounds better, emulating. It's the process by which a Christian with a life worth emulating commits himself for an extended period of time. process by which a Christian with a life worth emulating commits himself for an extended period of time to a few individuals who have been won to Christ. It's the process... By which a Christian with a life worth emulating commits himself for an extended period of time to a few individuals who have been won to Christ. The purpose being to aid and guide. The purpose being to aid and guide their growth to maturity. And equip them. To reproduce themselves in a third spiritual generation. The purpose being to aid and guide their growth for maturity and equip them to reproduce themselves in a third spiritual generation. I think the majority of discipleship that is happening in church is neglecting the third spiritual generation part. That's why many of us can say that we feel like we're making disciples and then the rest of us are left saying, I don't feel like I'm a disciple because I can't make a disciple. Many of us are being faithful to pass on knowledge and truth. 
But if we're not doing it in such a way that that person can then turn around and pass it on to somebody else, then we're not making disciples the way that Christ has commanded us to. And so at the end of the day, I can look at it and kind of examine how I've spent my time and say, yeah, like I, I teach people all the time. I'm constantly having conversations with people in my church. I am I'm spurring them on to follow Christ. And so at the end of the day, I can say, check, I feel like I'm making disciples. But then if I go to those people individually and say, hey, if we have a new believer coming to our church and I ask you to take them a disciple, then do you think you can do it? And they tell me no. Well, then I need to erase the check and say, whoa, 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 I haven't made disciples the way that I'm supposed to. I've passed on knowledge. I've been faithful to teach about Christ. But if I haven't equipped this person to pass it on to someone else, then it stops. It stops. When I die and when this person dies, my ministry stops. In 2 Timothy 2, Paul takes it even further and he's looking towards the fourth generation. He says in verse 1, you then, my child, this is Paul talking to Timothy, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul carries on this discipleship mindset. He says, Timothy, I've been pouring myself into you. I've been discipling you. I've been teaching you everything I know. But I've been doing it for the purpose of you to teach faithful men who can pass it on to other people. So Paul says, it starts with me. My ministry goes to Timothy. Timothy, find faithful men that you can do everything that I've done with you to them so that they can do it to someone else. Paul's saying, when I'm dead, there's still going to be people that are, that, are, that are a fruit of my ministry if I do it this way. And it's the method that Christ commanded. He passed everything on to 12 who then turned around and continued that process. And that's why the church exploded. It's the process of making a disciple who can turn around and make another disciple. That's the goal of Matthew 28, for disciples to find others to follow Jesus who would then find others as well. It's having a, a, a third generation mindset that what I'm doing with this person can get passed on to someone else. In your notes, we're going to look at over the next couple of weeks the three-step process for discipleship. I mean, that sounds really simple, doesn't it? Three steps. The three-step process for discipleship that comes from 1 Thessalonians. Um, it's not easy, but I've simplified it as much as I can. The prerequisite for discipleship, though, is... And it's, it's, it's contained in our definition. It's being a genuine convert. Being a genuine convert who can recognize genuine conversions. It's being a genuine convert who can recognize genuine conversions. Discipleship's not going to happen if you're not saved. I mean, you can't disciple somebody if you're not saved. You can't disciple somebody who's not saved as well. Some of us have been burned by that. We've tried to disciple someone who is not saved. You cannot take someone who is not saved and make them be like Christ. They will embrace a life of legalism where they think, if I do these things that we're talking about, then my salvation is guaranteed. And that's not the gospel. Before you ever start discipleship with somebody, you have to be the type of person who can recognize genuine conversions. That's why we talked about it. We talked about Paul. Recognizing this genuine conversion in the life of these Thessalonians. 
That's a prerequisite to discipleship happening. You have to be a genuine convert, and you have to recognize who are genuine converts so you can pour your life into them. Step number one, as far as we're going to get today, step number one is be a person worth following. Be a person worth following. Paul says, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. I think it's important, even in the context of sharing the gospel, who you are and what your life looks like is crucial to the effectiveness of the gospel. It's crucial to someone accepting the gospel. It's crucial for someone staying with the gospel. It's crucial for someone maturing in Christ, your personal life. When you share the gospel with somebody, you need to be able to share it in such a way that that person recognizes, well, the person sharing it with me is saved. Like, the things that they're talking about, I can tell are true in their life. I can tell that they've been freed from sin. I can tell they've been freed from a works-based mentality for salvation. I can, I can see that they have the joy of Christ in them. I think the, 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 the person who's sharing the gospel is so crucial to the gospel being received in the way the Thessalonians received it. We have a responsibility to make sure that our life, our life doesn't hinder the gospel. What type of men did Paul and his clan prove to be? First thing in your notes, they were men who were living for the gospel. They were men who were living for the gospel. These guys weren't just sharing the gospel. They were living the gospel. And in living it, they were sharing it with others. In my notes, I put, what they spoke about the gospel was backed up by their own changed life. You can't expect to have your gospel heard if it is not bearing fruit in your own life. As teachers, they were not motivated out of selfish gain. This is going to be an issue that comes up again in chapter 2. Remember, we said that Paul's reputation was being attacked by the Jewish, the Jewish group in Thessalonica. The Jewish people were trying to tear down Paul's ministry, and so they were calling into question his character and his motives. But Paul says, you guys know what type of character and motives we had. We proved it to you. They weren't there to make money off of these guys. It wasn't just simply about planting churches for Paul. He wasn't just trying to make himself feel better because he planted a church. He wasn't just trying to make himself feel better because he, he, he shared the gospel like he's told to do in the Bible. He wasn't, he wasn't motivated out of selfish gain. At the end of the day, he wasn't just checking something off his to-do list. He genuinely cared for these people. It's important that as you share the gospel with people, not only does your life back up a changed life, what that looks like, but that you're able to genuinely care about people that you share the gospel with. That it's not just a, a to-do list. That's what, to me, is so... It, it's difficult to go around door-to-door evangelism, knocking on people's doors and sharing the gospel. That, that's, that's a hard thing to do. Because I think a lot of times it's hard for someone to really perceive that you care about them. I've talked with, with Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons who, who strongly follow that type of method. And even in that process, I feel like they're simply doing what they've been told. They're checking something off their to-do list for the day. 
They don't necessarily genuinely care about me. And because I know a little bit more about it, I know that they feel like their salvation gets improved because they're being obedient to this. So it's hard for me to feel a genuine care that these people really care what happened to me. Because the way they do it, it it appears as though they're just checking it off their to-do list. We have to be careful that in sharing the gospel, we're not doing it out of the wrong motives. That we genuinely care for lost people. Paul, Paul was the type of person who was living for the gospel. And he genuinely cared for these people. It says that you know what type of men we prove to be among you for your sake. For your sake. Paul says, we're being meticulous about our lives matching up with the gospel for you. It's not just that he's pursuing sanctification for himself. He says, I want my life to look like it's been changed by the gospel for you so that you'll be more likely to accept the gospel. He says, it's for your sake that we prove to be these type of men. He says, I'm conscious about the fact that I want my life to be changed by the gospel so that others' lives will be changed by the gospel as well. He says, we've done this for your sake, not for our sake, but for your sake. We want to show you a gospel life so that you will embrace a gospel life as well. It's for your sake. They were intentional and patient to answer questions, to explain and re-explain the gospel. Remember, in Acts 17, Paul met with these people for three straight Saturdays. And I picture it being an all-day affair. Let me share the gospel with you. Let me share share Christ with you. Obviously, everybody didn't get saved on the first day because he comes back the second Saturday. And he probably goes through the same spiel again. And a third time, the same thing again. He's patient with these people. He takes their questions. He evaluates their questions. He attacks their questions. It's for their sake. He's all about them and their salvation. He's living a life for the gospel. He's not just checking it off his to-do list. He's embraced the gospel, and he wants others to embrace the gospel as well. I love, I love what uh, Acts 17, 7 says. It says, <clears throat> this is when the Jewish people have brought them before, um, they've seized them and arrested them. And it says, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. They're acting differently from their culture and from their world. You see that? It says they're acting against the decrees of Caesar. Now, I don't think the Jewish people are really concerned about living their life according to what Caesar says either. I mean, the Jewish religion contradicted what Caesar was saying. But their attempt is to appeal to Caesar, to appeal to the Roman government, and get rid of Paul and his clan. So they say, hey, these guys are preaching a life that's different than what everybody else is living. We see that happen in church after church where people get saved and it causes a ruckus because these people start living differently. Remember the book of Ephesians where these guys were making money, making money off sinful things. And Paul comes in and shares the gospel and people get saved. And these people who were making money off of sin are outraged by it because they've lost their clientele. He says, you guys are preaching a message and it causes us not to have profit anymore because these guys live differently now. Even the Jews recognize it. They say, Paul's teaching a message that's totally different than how everybody lives. It calls you to a different way of life. Paul had embraced this different way of life, and he was calling others to embrace this different way of life as well. That last part, it says, 
They're, they're going around saying that there's another king. His name's Jesus. Paul was, Paul was teaching a life that is submitted to another king that is not of this world. This world tells us how to live. This world tells us what to value. This world tells us what to spend our money on, how to spend our time, what to find joy and contentment in. Paul was teaching a different message. Paul was saying, you submit to King Jesus, you spend your money the way King Jesus says, you spend your time the way King Jesus says, you find joy and contentment in what King Jesus tells you to find joy and contentment in. It's different than, this, than, the, than the culture that Caesar had set up. It's different than what the American government has set up for us. It's different than the American dream. Paul teaches that you submit to King Jesus. You submit to King Jesus, not to the democracy of America. Not to, the, not to the culture of America, you submit to King Jesus. The question for us is, does your life support or hinder? Does your life support or hinder the validity of the gospel? Does it support or hinder the validity of the gospel? When you share the gospel with others, does your life improve their chances of receiving it? Or decrease their chances of receiving it? Does it improve their chances of getting saved because they see that it's real, that it really does have life-changing effects? Or do they look at it and say, I'm just not really seeing the big deal. I mean, because you claim to be a Christian, and I don't see that your life looks much different than mine, so why should I accept this gospel that you're telling me about? Number two, not only were they men who were living for the gospel, they were men who were theologically grounded. They were men who were theologically grounded. They had a deep-rooted understanding of Christ. We've already talked about this. They knew who Jesus Christ was. I don't want to pretend to think that, that Silas and Timothy knew everything about the Bible. I don't know what their knowledge was about the Bible. I know they knew who Jesus was. They knew who Jesus was. They had embraced the theology of Jesus and they were able to share it with others. They had a deep-rooted understanding of suffering in the life of a believer. These guys were able to portray to the Thessalonians what it looked like to suffer for Jesus and be okay with it. I mean, they're getting run out of town everywhere they go sharing the gospel. They're not, they're not complaining about it to the Thessalonians. They're not running and, and, and scared about it. They're just moving right along as the persecution moves them right along. They're not even entertaining the idea of giving up the gospel. This, this lifestyle of suffering is reinforcing something really important to these new believers. That it's okay to suffer for Jesus. That you will suffer for Jesus. And this is how you handle suffering for Jesus. They were, they were deeply grounded in their theology. Not that they knew everything about the Bible... But they specifically knew who Jesus was, and they knew it was okay to suffer for him, that it was worth suffering for this king that's coming back one day. Yeah, it doesn't make sense right now for us not to live the way Caesar tells us to live, but we worship King Jesus, and he's coming back. And when he comes back, then everything's going to make sense. It will be well worth it that we suffered for him when he comes back, takes control of everything, and everybody else that wasn't living for him is found to be a traitor. That's the message that they were passing on. To these people. So the question for us is, 
Have you done your part to know Christ through his word? Have you done your part to know Christ through his word? If you want to become a theologically sound person, you start with knowing who Christ is. You start with knowing who Christ is. You don't have to work out the, all the ins and outs of what the book of Revelation is trying to teach. You don't have to work out some of the confusing things about Scripture first. If you want to be a theologically sound person that's worth imitating, then simply know who Christ is. We can know him through his word, and we have the benefits of, of an unlimited amount of resources to help us know who Jesus is that complement his word. There, there are godly gifted men who instruct us about Jesus through their resources. If you want to write down one that's, that's really small, you can jot down Jesus, the only way to God by John Piper. It's about this thick. And it's a good theological understanding of who Jesus is. It's about this tall. This one. And it's extremely good. But there's, there's an unlimited amount of resources about knowing who Jesus is. Why he came to die for us. Books on his resurrection. You can embrace just simply finding out who Jesus is if you want to be a theologically sound person. Then number three. Not only were they men who were living for the gospel... Not only were they men who were theologically grounded, they were men who were kingdom-focused. They were kingdom-focused. They were kingdom-focused. They had another world mindset. Their, Their mindset was about another world, not this one. They were preparing and getting ready for the return of Christ. That's what we want to be about as a church. They were concerned about not this world, but the world that's to come. The one that's going to last a lot longer than this one. At best, we're going to live to be 80, 90 years old on this earth. We will live for eternity on the other one. Paul says it makes sense that I get ready for that one. It makes sense that I live... My 80 and 90 years right now to get ready for the one that I'm going to be in for forever. They they were other world minded. Their hope was based on the approval of Christ at his return, not man. They lived their life and they weren't concerned about the approval of men. They were concerned about how Christ would view them when he came back. And that's my mind. That's that's the mindset that I've got right now. I want to know that when Christ comes back, he can look at me and say, Adam, thank you for being faithful to make disciples. I can clearly see what you were doing here. I can clearly see that you had a desire and a vision and a direction for making disciples. I don't want him to come back and say, uh, where are your disciples at? What what are you doing? What did you think you were doing? Because you weren't making disciples. I see that you were very busy, but you weren't making disciples. I want Jesus to, to, to come back and be able to approve of me. Because I was faithful to make disciples the way that he told me to. I mean, it was the last thing that he told us when he left. Go make disciples. Go do it. Now, I want to figure out how to do it. He says, you know what type of men we prove to be for your sake. It was so crucial that their character backed up their gospel. 
I don't know if you've ever met somebody who's person who led them to Christ, walked away from the faith. I imagine that's got to be pretty devastating. You know, I mean, God forbid that you ever find out something about me. Not that I've led you to Christ, but for a lot of you, I've been, I've been investing in you for years. God forbid that you ever find something in me that disqualifies me from ministry. Because I can't imagine what type of effect that would have. You know, I, I think about men in my life like Brody at Snowbird. Like if you were to tell me that that guy had been having an affair and was leaving his family and walking away from the ministry, that would hurt tremendously, but would also cause me to like question a lot of the things that I heard from him. Like I would have to go back and reevaluate everything that I had heard from this man who had invested a lot into me. Your life is so important, not because, not just because of how it is viewed by Christ for you, but for the sake of others as well. Paul says, we have, we have proved to be faithful men for your sake because we want you to remain steadfast in the faith. So we remain steadfast in the faith for your sake. So to kind of wrap it up, we were talking about what it means to disciple Have you been discipled? Are you discipling others? I think one question that a lot of us get left with is, am I a person worth imitating? Can I honestly go and try to make disciples, or would that be foolish because I'm not a person worth imitating? We see what Paul tells us in in a couple of these passages real quick. 1 Corinthians 4.16. He says, I urge you then, be imitators of me. He tells these people at Corinth to imitate him. 1 Corinthians 11.1 Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Philippians 3.17 Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. 2 Timothy 1.13 Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And then in chapter 3, verse 10 and 11. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, My faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me. It's not just that we disciple people to be like Christ. That's the goal. But the way that we disciple people to be like Christ is that we give them something that they can model after as they pursue Christ. And that's our own life. I mean, at first it sounds arrogant, Paul saying, imitate me, imitate me, imitate me, imitate me. But yet that's what we're called to do. We're called to live our life in such a way that we're so attached to the gospel that we can come to somebody and say, imitate me. If you imitate me, you're on your way to imitating Christ. It doesn't do any good for you to just come to someone and say, imitate Christ, imitate Christ, imitate Christ, because that's where we lose the how factor. See, I want to know how to imitate Christ, and I need someone to show me how to do that. So I need to be able to follow someone who is imitating Christ 
so I can see the how process. How do I follow Christ? Well, let me show you. Let me show you what I'm doing. So what does it mean to be a a person worth imitating? These are some things that I jotted down yesterday. Um, These are things personally that that I've kind of, this isn't like, this isn't five points that came from from a verse in Scripture. These are five things that I came up with personally. That, that I think if, if someone possessed these things, I would be willing to follow them and be discipled by them. And I think these are five things that you can embrace and feel confident that if these five things are true about you, then you are ready to make disciples of others. Okay? The first one is knows the gospel. For you to disciple somebody and for me to want to follow you, I'm going to need to know that you know the gospel. That you know what it means to be saved, how to be saved, whether I can lose my salvation or not. That you can answer those type of questions. So for you, as you evaluate, are you the type of person that's worth imitating? Are you the, are you the type of person that can confidently tell someone, hey, come follow me? It starts with you knowing the gospel. Do you know the gospel? And if you don't, what are you going to do to learn it? How are you going to get to the point where you do know the gospel? Secondly... A good theological understanding of Jesus. <clears throat> a good theological understanding of Jesus. Number three. Believes in sovereignty. And then out beside that you can put his glory, my good. You've got to be the type of person who believes that God works things for his glory and for the good of his children. Because if I'm going to follow you, I need to see how you react to bad situations in your life. I need to see how you react to disaster in your life. I need you to show me that you're grounded in the sovereignty of God, that he is working things for your good. I'm going to need to be able to see how you respond to suffering and disaster in your life. Number four. A submission to King Jesus. And out beside that I put, what he wants is best for me. It's not that you're a perfect person who obeys Jesus at every turn. But you're the type of person who says, when I read scripture and I see what Jesus wants from me, I recognize that it's what's best for me. I may not always live in accordance to the commands of scripture. But I'm striving to because I believe that they're what's best. I'm submitted to King Jesus in the sense that I recognize what he decrees is best. I'm not going to pretend that I always obey him. But I am going to confess to you that I always acknowledge I should have obeyed him. That it was the better way to do things. A submission to King Jesus. And then fifthly, a desire to learn. A desire to learn. And out beside that I put based on a hunger for God's word. You don't have to be the type of person that has all the answers to everybody's questions. It's not that you have to reach some type of status to where you know X amount about the Bible and now you can disciple somebody. It's okay for you to be discipling somebody and for them to come to you and say, Hey, um, what do you think about this? Well, I don't know what I think about that. That's a great question. Let's, let's talk about that together. Let me... Let me learn about that right now so that I can help you understand. That happens all the time for me. Everything I teach you guys, I have just learned a lot of times. 
Like everything that we learn through Philippians, every doctrine that I teach you when we do some type of topical doctrine, everything I taught you about money this summer is everything that I learned about money this summer. That's stuff that I didn't know before this summer. I certainly don't have everything figured out about Scripture. But I have an intense desire to learn. I have an intense desire to learn. It it shapes how I spend my time. I'm constantly reading books. I'm constantly thinking about things that I don't know and trying to find the answers for them. I want to know more and more about God and His Word. I don't know everything now. But I have a desire to learn. I think we demonstrate that we... We are waiting for Jesus to come back and that we're, we're excited about it by involving ourselves in discipleship. Because we're getting ready for the next world. We, we, we seek to be discipled so that we become more like Christ. Because when Jesus comes back, we'll be made into the image of him for eternity. We, we seek to disciple others because we want them to be ready for when Jesus comes back. We show that we're waiting for Jesus to come back by how involved we are in discipleship. The application question for you is who is your Paul and who is your Timothy? Who is your Paul? Who is your Timothy or Timothy's? Who are you learning from? And who are you seeking to teach? It shouldn't be that if I were to come in and tell you that Jesus changed the Great Commission, that we're now supposed to make football players, guitar players, drum players. We're supposed to make good cooks. We're supposed to to make good hairstylists. It shouldn't be that then all of a sudden it would become, oh, now I know how to spend my time. Now I'm going to get real intentional about how I train people. We should be intentional about training people now with the Great Commission that we have been given. If we can be formal about training people to play the drums and to play football, then we can definitely be formal in training people to follow Christ. We can be intentional. We're going to continue to talk about this as we move forward. We talked about step one today. Step one is you being the type of person worth imitating. We'll look at the next two two steps in the coming weeks. So I don't have all the answers for you today about what this looks like. But I want you to be thinking about it. I want to challenge your thinking about it so that we can seek to answer it together as we move forward. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us the church, that you have not abandoned us once we got saved and and expected us to figure it out on our own, that you have instructed the church. You've instructed the leadership of the church to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. So, God, we recognize that the discipleship mandate starts at the top and flows down. And, God, I confess that that I want to know how to do this. That I'm not content to to just hope that these people get it. God, I know that one day I'm going to give an account for their souls when I stand before you. And so, Father, I want to do everything that I can to make you proud. But ultimately, I want to do everything I can so that these people can stand before you one day and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. God, help me to desire this discipleship movement for the sake of these people. God, I pray that you would raise up people in our church who are worth imitating. 
Not because they have everything figured out, not because they have all the answers, but because they simply are willing to lead people in what they know. And they're not content to be satisfied with what they know right now. But they're going to continue to grow and continue to learn more so that they can lead people into deeper things about what you desire for them. So God, I pray that you would help us understand discipleship. That you would help us to evaluate how we're spending our time and our lives in, in regards to that. That you would teach us to, to be the type of people worth imitating. But that you would also teach us what it means to teach others. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Tyson's going to come and the guys are going to come and lead us in a time of, of response that we've, we've been in the word and now we can praise and worship God for the work that he's doing in our life.